If you are a sports fan as I am, no doubt you've heard at some point somebody has won a game and one of that team's representatives has gotten up in a post-game interview and, and just said, I would just like to thank God for being with us in that victory. And if you've heard such a statement, you've probably also heard the criticisms that follow quickly after that from others who say, who is this person to think that God likes his team more than the other team? After all, weren't there Christians on the other team praying for their team too? And, and isn't it kind of self-righteous to think that your team is the team that God likes more? Well, there is kind of a, a faulty logic or at least a faulty presupposition that stands beneath that line of thinking and probably beneath the line of thinking of many who do thank God for their victories. And this line of thinking goes that God only gives enjoyable and happy things to those whom he is for. But the reality is we look in the Bible as we see that this is certainly not the case because the Bible is unswervingly consistent in its message that those of us who are Christians, those of us who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, will undoubtedly and repeatedly and ongoingly face all sorts of trials, all sorts of difficulties, all sorts of afflictions. At the same time, though, the Bible is just as constant and we can be just as certain in this truth that even in the midst of difficulties, God is certainly for us. This is part of the message that we read of in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Follow along with me now as I read from this passage from the inspired word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the promises of your word, the promise that you are indeed for us and that we need not worry about that. May this truth root itself deep in our hearts today through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
One of the difficulties we have in studying the Bible is that we have a tendency to break it up into small chunks, which, which is a good thing because it makes it a lot easier to mine its depths. If we tried to study the Bible by, by sitting down one day and starting at Genesis 1 and not putting the Bible down until we got to the end of the Bible, that would be hard. We wouldn't be able to go very deep with that reading. But we would gain a lot of perspective if we did it that way, a lot of context that is otherwise lost. Here we lose some context because we, we fail to realize that the book of Romans, when it was originally written, would have been read to a congregation in one sitting. Whereas we're just looking at nine verses. And so we need to put ourselves in the mindset of those who have read it in one sitting or had it read to them in one sitting. And we look at the beginning of this passage and we see Paul saying, what then shall we say to these things? And we ask ourselves, well, what are these things to which Paul refers? And one could assume that perhaps these things are the things that have been in the immediately preceding verses. And certainly there's some truth to that. Or perhaps he's talking about maybe the paragraph or two that have led up to this. But I believe that what he is talking about when he says these things is basically everything that has led up to this point in the book of Romans. He is talking about a body of knowledge, eight chapters long, that he has presented already. He is talking about the fact that as sinners we are left without an excuse before a holy God. And he is talking about the fact that it's not just hearers of the law who are justified, but doers of the law. And he is talking about the fact that there is not one of us who is such a doer. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, and we are justified only by the grace of God as a gift through faith. And since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus And as a result, we ought to not go on sinning, but rather ought to live lives of righteousness as a response to the grace that God has given us. But even as we fail to do so, so often warring within ourselves, doing those things we wish we did not do, and failing to do those things that we really want to do, we can be confident and we can rest in the comfort of the promise that there is No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has adopted us as sons and made us co-heirs with Christ. And it is in light of these things, all of these things, that Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? And if we know that these things are true, we can not help but answer as Paul does when he answers a question with another question and says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It is a good question. It's not really even so much a question. When he says if, it's not a hypothetical. He's not wondering, well, maybe God is for us, maybe he's not. He is saying it more in the sense of of since God is for us. Who can be against us? And we know that he is thinking along these lines because of what he says in the very next verse, in verse 32. He points out the fact that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This language is important. 
for a couple of reasons. First of all, when he speaks of not, he did not spare his own son, it points us to the depth of the love that God has for us. One might lay down his own life for another person, and that would be a great act of service and a great act of love because we love our own lives. But I can say as a father that as unwilling as I might be to lay down my own life, that to lay down the life of my children is a million times more unthinkable. And I'm sure all of you who are parents can say the same. I'm not heroic in that opinion. That is common to us all. We love our children and we would not give them up. And yet we see here, God says to us through his word that he loved us so much that he did not spare his son, his only son who he loved. That shows us the depth of God's love for us. But that's not all that we see in this language that he did not spare his own son. It also hearkens us back to the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. You may recall the background. Abraham had been promised by God that he would be the father of nations. And yet, he was in his 90s and still had no children. But God finally provides him with a son at the age of 100. And some years later, while that son is still a child, God comes to Abraham and he tells him, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. And we can only imagine the thoughts that are going through Abraham's mind, the questions that he must have had. But above and beyond all of those questions, he trusted in God. And so he followed God. And so he took Isaac up the hill and Isaac carried the wood on which he would be sacrificed himself. And at the top of the hill, Abraham actually got to the point where he had a knife raised to slay his own son. When God calls out to him in Genesis 22, stop, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And God provided then a ram that was caught in the bushes for him to sacrifice in his place. But we see in this story that we are hearkened back to by Paul's words here. The truth that Tim Keller points out. That just as God essentially told Abraham, Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, who you love, from me, so too we can gather at the foot of the cross and proclaim to God, now I know, God, that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, who you love, but instead offered him up as a sacrifice for me. You see, that's the point. We know that God loves us, not because we are happy, not because we're healthy, not because our marriage is going great or because the kids are doing well in school, not because everything is going well, 
but we know that God loves us because he did not withhold his son, his only son, who he loves, but offered him up as a sacrifice for us. We are told here that he gave him up for us all. Who is the us all that Paul is talking about? Well, it can only be the same people that he was talking about just a few verses earlier in verses 28 through 30 when he spoke of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew, those who he predestined, those who he called, those who he justified, those that he glorified. You see, brothers and sisters, he is talking about the church. He is talking about those of us who have trusted in Christ Jesus. And if he has done all of this for us, then we can only agree with Paul. Will he not also graciously give us all things? You see, our confidence is not grounded in our circumstances. Our confidence is grounded in the promise of God and what he has already done and what he has promised he will do. It's a matter of grace. He does not give us what we deserve, for what we deserve is condemnation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We deserve the wages of sin, which is death. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that that is true? I deserve condemnation. I am not, at my core, a basically good person. And neither are you. We tend to think in those terms, don't we? Well, I'm basically a good person. I go to church on Sunday mornings. I try to help my neighbors. I try to be nice to people. I try to do what the Bible tells me to. But the Bible gives us its laws not just to show us how we should live, but to point out the fact that we fail at every turn. And we stand condemned. We need to realize that. We need to remember that. We need to know that it is true in the depths of our hearts. We stand condemned before a righteous judge except for his grace. And so we receive his blessing as a matter of grace and we receive it with him, we are told here. This is two things that we're taught of by this phrase, with him. One is that God has given his son and with him, in addition to him, he gives us all blessings. That's one sense, but also Another sense is, it is in union with him. It is because of our union with him, because we are united to Christ through faith, by his spirit, that we receive those blessings. You see, it is because of Christ's obedience that we receive blessings. Every blessing we receive has been earned by Christ. And through his obedience, we are united with him, And so we share in the blessings that he receives. We share even in his inheritance. Ephesians 1.11 tells us, In him we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance that Peter tells us is imperishable and undefiled, unfading and kept in heaven for you. 
You see, what Christ has earned, we enjoy. What a blessing of grace that is. That the perfect Christ has earned our blessing. And if this is the case, then indeed there certainly can be none who is against us. There can be none who charge us. There can be none who condemn us. And there can be none who punish us. Paul looks at these three aspects in these verses. In verse 33, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who has declared us righteous. If that is the case, who can bring a charge against us? The one who brings charges against us, of course, is Satan. We think of Satan as a tempter. We think of him as a deceiver. But the very word Satan in Hebrew means the accuser. And so we must know that this is central to his identity of who he is. He is an accuser. He accuses God in the garden when Adam and Eve are tempted. He essentially tempts them by accusing God of withholding good things from them. But it's not only God whom he accuses. The Bible tells us that he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you and he accuses me. Have you ever heard these accusations? As you sit there, do you ever hear his whisper in your ear accusing you of wrongdoing? Accusing you of sin? It's easy to hear because after all it is true we have sinned. We are on one hand guilty and so the accusations ring true. But we must remember that that is the beauty of the gospel. That even though those accusations could ring true on one level, on a higher level, they are nullified because of the grace of God, because we have been clothed with his righteousness. There's a beautiful picture of the gospel in the book of Zechariah. Chapter 3 begins, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of what Christ Jesus has done for us. He has taken off the filthy garments of our sin. And he has replaced them with the pure and spotless vestments of his holiness. Of his righteousness. And so we stand perfectly clean before God. Because we are dressed in Christ Jesus' righteousness. So now if Satan would accuse us, he would have to accuse Christ Jesus. And there is no accusation which can stand against Christ Jesus. And so there is no accusation which can stand against us. And if we cannot be accused, neither can we be condemned. Who is it that condemned, Paul asks 
in verse 34. For Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. You see, payment has been made. The verdict has been rendered. We are in the eyes of God not guilty. And it is because of Christ Jesus, because of his holy life, and he has been vindicated through the fact that he has risen from the dead and ascended on high where he sits right now at the right hand of God. And so, when we hear about a court case in the news, what is it we always hear? They say that this side won or that side won, but there are appeals pending. But in this case, there can be no appeals pending for the highest court in the land has ruled. There is no other court to appeal to. God has declared us righteous in Christ Jesus. And just as there is no charge that can stand, there is no verdict which can go against us, there is no punishment which we will have to endure. What a beautiful promise that is. The greatest punishment we could possibly ever experience would be to be separated from the love of God. And that is what Christ Jesus endured on our behalf on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did so, so that you might never have to cry that out yourself. For God will never forsake you. And Paul knows this to be true, and that's why he asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You see, it's a rhetorical question. Of course the answer is no. But although it's rhetorical, it's not hypothetical for Paul because he has experienced these very things. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Some versions say nakedness. You see, these things that Paul mentions here are not hypothetical for him. They are things he has actually experienced. And he knows experientially that none of them will separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's why he can quote Psalm 44 and say, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he can say it still confident that he will not be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now we might feel, how could this apply to me? I, I live in a place, as Al mentioned before when he prayed, where we can proclaim the love of Christ and we need not worry about being put to death for that. How does this apply to me? Well, it applies to me in that it applies to all of life difficulties. All of life difficulties fall under this rubric. What Paul wants the Romans to know and what he wants you to know is that we determine our identity and our relationship with God not on the basis of our circumstances, 
but rather on the basis of what God's word says is true. Paul can say here that we are more than conquerors, even in the face of all these tribulations, because he knows God's word. I say he knows God's word because when he says he who did not spare his own son, we hear the echoes of Genesis 22, as we mentioned before. When he said, it is God who justifies, who is it to condemn? We hear an echo of Isaiah 50 that speaks in the same way. When he says Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, it is an allusion to the 110th Psalm. When he says Christ intercedes for us, it is an echo of Isaiah 53. And when he says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, he is directly quoting the 44th Psalm. You see, Paul knows the word of God, and so he has founded his identity on its truths. And if we are to know who we are truly and rightly, then we must also know the word of God. And So we must hunger for it, that it might be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that it might show us who we are. We must find ourselves hearing the word preached, but it must not end there. As we sit around the dinner table on Sunday afternoon for lunch, we should talk about what was preached. We should discuss what the word of God has been shown to us. Not just then, but over other meals at other times, we should discuss it with one another, sharing what we've been learning, sharing what the Spirit has been laying on our hearts with others. We must study it privately on our own. We must study it with one another. We should be in Bible studies. We should be in Sunday school classes. We should be spending time in the Word, finding that it is indeed living and active, that it convicts us of our sin, but beyond that, it proclaims to us the gospel. And the gospel is not just something that is our entrance key into the kingdom, it is the fuel by which kingdom living takes place. Beyond that, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, it is the pharmaceutical remedy for the heart that doubts the love of God. And so as we proclaim the gospel to ourselves and have it proclaimed to others, we know that we are indeed more than conquerors through him who loved us. The wording here is literally super conquerors through him who loved us. William Hendrickson suggests that a conqueror is one who defeats his enemies A super conqueror is one who causes his enemies to become his allies. And Paul would know all about this, of course, because he was an enemy of God who became an ally of God. And we too, he tells us, were enemies who were reconciled to God. And so we with Paul can say that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We don't have any time to go into all those in detail, but the idea is, of course, that each one of those things represents a different end. He's saying, as far as you go to the east, as far as you go to the west, as far as you go up, as far as you go down, no matter where you go, there is nothing which can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. In just a moment, we'll sing a song that is really commonly known as an Easter hymn. Christ the Lord is risen today. 
But I want to sing it today because I want to celebrate Easter today. Because that's why the earliest Christians gathered together on Sundays. It was because they wanted to celebrate the resurrection of their Lord. And really we should celebrate Easter not just on one Sunday in spring. But rather every time we gather, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. For if Christ Jesus is still dead, we are utterly without hope. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are among all people most to be pitied. But if Christ is truly risen from the dead, and I am here to tell you that there is an empty grave that testifies to this truth. If he is risen from the dead, then we who trust in him have hope. Hope for eternal life, but not just that. Hope in the midst of Satan's taunts and jeers and accusations. Hope in the midst of every kind of suffering. Hope for freedom from the bondage of sin. And hope for everlasting peace. For if God is for us, who can be against us? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your promise that you are indeed for us. Lord, may that truth just grow and grow in our hearts so that it blossoms out into every aspect of our life. Let us walk in that confidence, knowing that you are true and faithful to your promises. It is in Christ Jesus' name that we ask it.